0: Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientist, with me Chris Smith and also with Kat Arnie. This week we calculate why your ability to read and do maths might be down to your genes,
1: how e-labels could revolutionise your shopping and why elephants can't cry.
0: Plus we're celebrating the 45th anniversary of the launch of Apollo 11, the mission which first put mankind on the moon. We'll be looking at lunar rocks, discovering how we could mine the moon for energy solutions And investigating why Google are dishing out $20 million of prize money to anyone who can land a robot on the moon in the next 18 months.
2: The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk.
1: Now, is being brainy in your genes, or does it come from your upbringing? Well, the true answer, of course, lies somewhere in between. And thanks to a new study, we're getting closer to teasing apart the complex relationship between nature and nurture. Across the world, scientists have been studying thousands of 12-year-olds to try and find genes involved in maths and language skills and have come up with a surprising result. There's actually a substantial link between the gene variations involved in reading and maths, so if you're genetically gifted at one, you're likely to have gene variations that make you good at the other. I asked lead researcher Professor Robert Plowman from King's College London whether our mental agility truly is genetic or heritable.
3: People might be surprised to know, but it's no longer interesting to ask that question, is it heritable? Because every single study over decades has shown that it is heritable. So we're trying to go beyond heritability. And one of the most interesting questions is to ask, are the same genes affecting different traits? Because you might expect something like reading is very different from math because the cognitive processes involved in doing math and reading would seem to be so different. So you would expect that although they're both heritable different genes would affect the two skills.
1: So you've got like a maths gene that means you can add, subtract, juggle numbers in your head, and a reading gene that means you can kind of focus and understand words. Yeah,
3: except most definitely what's come out of the molecular genetic work on DNA is it isn't one gene. We're talking about hundreds or maybe thousands of genes of very small effect. So the question's more quantitative. To what extent are the different genes that affect reading overlapping with the genes that affect math, and the punchline is that although you might expect very different genes to be involved, in fact, most of the genes are the same. So the take-home message is genes make you similar in reading and math and all these cognitive abilities. The environment makes you different. So the reason why kids are better at one thing than another is probably down to environment, which is kind of a hopeful message in a way.
1: Going to the links between reading and math, I mean, why do you think this might be? I mean, we do talk about numbers as words as well as actual kind of numerical concepts. Is that the same kind of process going on in the brain there, you think?
3: Well, in terms of cognitive processes and attempts to get at the functional MRI, the way in which you measure how the brain works through imaging, they do suggest there are different processes involved. And at a cognitive level, you know, the sorts of thought processes you use to solve problems, I agree you use words to describe numbers, but it does seem to be very different cognitively. The thing is, though, they all use the brain. And although we think of the brain in neuroscience very often as modular, this bit of the brain does that, and this bit of the brain does that, from an evolutionary perspective, you might really expect that the brain is a general problem solver, and it solves problems in reading, it solves problems in math and spatial ability. So to a large extent, the general problem-solving ability of the brain comes into play, even in processes as different, apparently, as reading and math. So that's what I think is involved.
1: So knowing with these things that you found, the information that you've got, that reading math's ability seem to be linked, what next?
3: Well, we're going to continue trying to find the genes. There's a lot that's still happening. But I think just at the level we're at now, if there are any parents who still think children are a blob of clay that you just mold to be what you want them to be, tabula rasa, the blank slate, they might pay attention to these data and realize that kids aren't just molded to be what you want them to be. And maybe as parents and teachers, we need to recognize that children differ even very early in life and maybe respect those differences to a greater extent. It doesn't mean if it's genetic, you can't do anything about it. If you have a child who's reading disabled, it doesn't mean you can't help them to read. It's just going to take a lot more work than some children who just almost naturally start reading. So you've got to roll up your sleeves and say, it's going to take more work. It's not the fault of the schools or the teachers or the parents or that the child's lazy. Some children just find it much more difficult to learn than others. And these new data suggest it's kind of a general thing. It isn't just have problems with one thing. If they have problems with one thing, On the average, they're likely to have some problems with most things. So that means you have to pay attention to that and not just blame schools, teachers and parents, which is what we tend to do.
1: Professor Robert Playman from King's College, London.
0: Imagine waving your smartphone over your shopping basket and the oranges telling you when and where they were picked, the pills in your doctor's prescription confirming their, yep, in date, and even the banknotes that you'll use to pay for the shopping authenticating themselves so you know they're not forgeries. Well, this is all now feasible thanks to a Swedish and UK breakthrough that means it's possible to print electronic circuits onto paper labels. They're called e-labels and they can be powered by the radio transmissions from a mobile phone. It's a development of electronic chips called radio frequency identification tags, which is an existing technology, as science writer Mark Peplow explains.
2: We've all heard about radio frequency identification tags known as RFIDs. They've become ubiquitous over the past decade. They're used to track goods, contactless payment cards like Oyster Cards in London. They're used in passports and loads more. How do they actually work, Mark? you can either have a passive RFID tag, which basically picks up a radio signal and uses that to generate a current inside the device. And that current then is used to send a signal back to a receiver And it sends some information, you know, I'm a load of cargo that started off in Singapore a week ago, and this is where I've been since. Other ones are actually powered by batteries, and they tend to be able to send signals over longer distances and carry more information as well, but they're a lot more expensive. People have been trying to create much cheaper tags, which they call e-labels, that can be printed onto any surface using just an inkjet printer. And now a team in Sweden has created the first printed e-label that can communicate directly with a smartphone.
0: So this is intriguing. You can actually print a circuit with ink.
2: Yeah, that's right. Essentially, a diode is what they're printing, and that's built up using tiny particles of silicon locked into a sort of polymer slurry, and you can print it out using an inkjet printer. You hook that diode up to an aluminium foil antenna and a flexible polymer display, and when you wave a smartphone over this device, the high frequency radio signals from the smartphone are picked up by the antenna, channeled into the diode and that moves electrons around in the diode and generates a current and that's used to illuminate the polymer display. So the smartphone signal is being used as an energy source. Now, this is a proof of principle. In the future, the researchers say it should be quite possible to use that energy to send a signal back, carrying information back to the smartphone, so that you're passing on details about whatever this e-label is stuck to.
0: Wow. So you could, for instance, print a banknote and print into a banknote some circuit Similar to this, and this would mean that if someone wanted to, say, authenticate a banknote to prove it wasn't a forgery, you could just wave your phone over it. The energy just from the phone radio waves coming out of the phone would drive this.
2: That's exactly right. And that's actually why this team started working on this. They were working with a British company called Delarue, which is the world's largest banknote and passport manufacturer. And they wanted to make a security code that could be printed into banknotes. And in theory, yes, a smartphone held close to this banknote would be able to identify the e-label in it. And that might hold information about the origin of the note, how long it's been in circulation and so on. And that should be very difficult to counterfeit.
0: This is almost like a fusion between cash and card or electronic transactions, isn't it? You've actually got money with a memory, potentially.
2: Potential for this goes a lot larger. The researchers are saying that this is a key component, this diode, in what you would need to actually build an internet of things. Now, this is a concept that's been talked about for a few years that would basically see pretty much everything connected to the internet. You can sort of see why connecting your fridge to the internet might be useful. It could monitor when you need to order more food from the supermarket, for example, and just do that automatically for you. But what about connecting magazines, paper magazines to the internet or an orange? I mean, if you had an e-label stuck to an orange, you swipe your phone over it and it tells you where it was picked, how long it took to transport it from wherever it was picked. So the idea is that you can achieve these sorts of things if you can get cheap enough e-labels to do this. And that's what this printing technology allows you to do because it, it literally is just inkjet printed onto a surface.
0: The power of the e-label coming to a shopping basket near you soon. That was Mark Peplow. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney
1: this week. In a scenario familiar to anyone who's moved house after a long time, the US government was shocked to discover six glass vials of the smallpox virus hidden in a cardboard box while cleaning out an old storeroom. It was previously thought that the only two remaining samples of the potentially deadly disease were securely stored in Atlanta and Russia. Now, officials don't yet know if the samples found are alive, and if so, whether they pose a health threat, but oops. So, with the lowdown, here is your quick fire science on smallpox with Hannah. Critchlow and Ginny Smith.
4: Smallpox is caused by the variola virus and is spread by direct contact with infected bodily fluids.
5: The symptoms include fever, aches and the spots, or pox, that give the illness its name. In the past, the disease killed a third
4: of all infected adults and up to 80% of children. By the end of the 18th century in Europe, This meant the death of 400,000 people each year,
5: and even five kings. Many more were left blind. Whilst there is no known cure, vaccines can provide lasting immunity. But using the live smallpox virus as a vaccine is dangerous, as people could become ill and die. In 1796, a doctor
4: called Edward Jenner discovered that giving people a dose of cowpox left them with immunity to smallpox. This made the vaccination process much less dangerous, as
5: cowpox was a much milder illness. Vaccination was so successful that the number of cases dropped dramatically, and by the 1970s, vaccination was no longer necessary. The last known natural case of smallpox
4: was in 1977. But in 1978, a photographer working in a lab handling the virus became accidentally infected and died. In
5: 1979, the WHO, or World Health Organization, certified that smallpox had been eradicated and began a global effort to keep track of the remaining stocks of the virus. By 1983, all known stocks had been destroyed or brought to one of the two holding centres in America or Russia. In 1990, the WHO recommended that these last two known stocks should be destroyed to prevent accidental release. Some scientists, however, argued that they should be kept. They believe we need to understand more about the virus in order to protect ourselves from possible bioterrorism. Another
4: fear is that the virus could re-emerge naturally, perhaps from melting permafrost. If we no longer had the samples, we would be unable to create new antiviral
5: drugs. At the moment, two advisory groups to the WHO disagree about whether the remaining virus should be destroyed. And so the decision has again been delayed, whilst a third advisory group is set up to discuss the matter.
1: Hannah Critchlow and Ginny Smith. And you can get hold of all our Quickfire Science episodes as their own podcasts from our website. That's thenakedscientist.com slash quickfirescience.
0: Every year, millions of us end up locked to lavatory seats for much longer than we'd like, owing to something that we ate. But tracking down the sources of these foodborne illnesses is extremely difficult. It usually takes public health officials months to carry out detailed interviews with victims as well as conduct laboratory tests to try to identify the bugs responsible. And even then, the culprit can sometimes escape identification. Now, computer scientists at IBM's Public Health Department in California have discovered a way to use food sales information collected by supermarkets, together with reports of disease outbreaks, to pinpoint the sources of food poisoning within days of an outbreak, potentially preventing thousands of people from becoming unwell.
6: The technique combines sales distribution for different products that might be available from a retailer like a large supermarket with public health case reports. These are confirmed laboratory reports, so you know that an outbreak is happening and you know where the case reports occurred. Comparing those locations with the sales distribution for different products, it's possible to calculate the probability of, that each product in turn might be responsible for the outbreak or might be the contaminated product. So you calculate that product probability for every product. And then you can use statistical techniques to determine the most likely suspect product set. And that set gets smaller as the number of case reports increases. Surprisingly, after as few as 10 case reports, that set size is small enough that you can actually test them all. And we think that The paper is going to be interesting to not just the public health community, but also to the retailers, to the private companies that sell and distribute food, because outbreaks lead to huge economic losses. So worldwide, the cost of foodborne disease is about $9 billion a year in medical cost, but the economic losses due to lost sales of, in many cases, perfectly good food, is over $75 billion a year. So. There's an economic incentive for the food retailers to take advantage of the data that they already have, and they can proactively calculate sales distributions over time. Then when an outbreak does occur, they can use that to see if something in their inventory is involved in the outbreak.
0: Can you see that they might see this as a disadvantageous thing to do? Because if something does occur, and it's on their patch, it's their fault potentially, this could have medico-legal and insurance implications. And so wouldn't it be better for them to remain under the radar under certain circumstances?
6: It's actually quite the opposite. So we've talked to some of the big retailers in the US, and they're very open. They have websites where they inform people about all of the recalls that are underway for different types of food, whether their products are involved. If you think about it, a supermarket is a victim. They're receiving... Food ingredients, grocery items from all over the world, if one of their suppliers provides them with food that's contaminated, not only do they have to dispose of that food, of course, if there's an outbreak, they may have to dispose of all salad products. In Europe in 2011, European farmers, the losses was over 150 million euros because they had to discard a wide variety of salad products. There was an outbreak, but they didn't know the cause. They just knew that it was salad.
0: Why do you think no one's done what you've managed to do at IBM before now? Because it's not rocket science, is it, to tie geography with sales volumes and pin that on a disease?
6: It's not rocket science. It was, however, surprising. The reason the method works is that there are differences in the pattern of sales for different products. One might intuitively think that, oh, the grocery sales will be so uniform, how could you possibly tell one food from another. But in fact, for the majority of products, there are significant differences. And so that's that's the essence of how the method works. So that was what we studied in the paper.
0: That was IBM's James Kaufman. and He published that method in PLOS Computational Biology this week. So hopefully, everyone everywhere could begin to use it if enough retailers get together and decide to embrace it.
1: Let's hope so. Now, earlier this week, a conservation group published an image of an elephant they had rescued. The elephant appeared to be crying, some said with relief and joy, prompting the pictures to go viral. The BBC's Victoria Gill wanted to investigate whether elephants can really cry, but her article appears to have upset the mood slightly. This is a story that
7: seems to have captured the public imagination um, all around the world, actually, this week. A conservation organisation called Wildlife SOS reported that they had rescued an elephant called Raju who had been treated appallingly for apparently... 50 years. He'd actually been sort of passed from pillar to post, being kept as a begging elephant. He was chained in these horrendous shackles that had spikes on them around his legs that produced very nasty wounds. This was in India. He was in very terrible condition. He was very, very thin. And this conservation organisation, the good news story, is that they rescued him. But the story that really kind of captured the imagination was this picture of Raju after he was rescued that appeared to show this big big streak that looked like a tear running down his face. And so this conservation organization and then lots of news outlets reported that this elephant had wept with joy. I'm not sure there's any evidence to support that.
0: So you're saying that it is exclusively humans that cry?
7: It seems to be, yeah. I think what we've got here is a case of convenient and probably quite campaigning anthropomorphism. Elephants actually, like a lot of mammals, apart from the mammals that live in water, have these lacrimal glands that produce the sort of aqueous, the liquid part of our tears. Our eyes, in order to move around in our sockets and be bathed and protected, and protected from bacteria as well, have to be constantly bathed in this fluid. And so lots and lots of these land-dwelling mammals produce tears and actually elephants are really interesting because they have lots of glands around their eyes that produce different liquids, not just the kind of salty aqueous tears that we produce Young males, when they're in what's called must, which is a kind of high testosterone, very sexually active period, this hormonal response will actually make them produce even more of these secretions. If you go to a safari park, if you go to a zoo, you will see what look like tears streaming down their face, but there's no evidence at all that these are emotional tears, that they crying like us. That seems to be an exclusively human physiological thing.
0: I think there's also some evidence that according to what mood a person is in, human, the composition of their tears changes too. So there's a difference between emotional tears, sadness, happy tears and eye-watering because you've got something in your eye type tears.
7: Yeah, there is. I mean, still actually a lot of mystery, kind of evolutionary mystery surrounding why we actually produce tears and it's something that puzzled even Darwin. There's a really nice book called Why Humans Weep. It's a really interesting book and it sort of talks about how our crying actually changes as we mature. Babies and small children are very very vocal in their crying and as we grow to maturity we will cry very quietly and just produce these tears. And what he suggests is that that kind of silent weeping is actually a protective mechanism because if we can show to our social Group, our family group around us, that we're distressed and we need help, but not call out and make an involuntary sound. That means that the predators won't be able to hear that we're in distress, but we'll be able to give a signal to our group that we need some help.
0: Indeed, because some people suggest that because so much of our brain, I think a third of our brain, is given over to decoding what we're looking at, we've naturally evolved to have very visual signs of how we're feeling. Whereas other animals, including elephants, they tend to have much better developed senses of other types. And so for them... physical visible signal like a tear running down their face would be quite literally lost in such a huge area of face that probably would be less useful to them as a signal.
7: Exactly and with animals whose sense of smell, whose other senses as you say are so much more important to them. Interestingly we don't seem to be the only animals that will cry as in cry out because if you define crying as an emotional response to distress that might be a vocal response. We've seen that in elephants and we've seen what seems to be collective grieving even so there have been observations of elephants gathering around the bodies of deceased elephants in groups and there have been different responses from the different animals in that group and some appear to to rock their bodies in response which sounds anthropomorphizing again like a very human like distress like response that's sort of rocking so we may well not be the only animals that cry in fact we don't seem to be but we're the only animal that produces these emotional tears and there's still so much evolutionary mystery around that
0: so how's it gone down then, uh, your analysis of the fact that the elephant probably wasn't really crying? Has it um, been well received or <laughs> have people I, shed a tear or two over the fact that elephants don't seem to cry?
7: I think I managed to dampen the, 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 the nation's spirits um, by, by sort of bringing in a little bit of what I thought was quite um, interesting sort of actual animal behaviour observation, a bit of ethology, a bit of science into it to just say, well, no, there's no evidence of this, but you know, the physiology of, of elephants and actually all the glands around there are eyes is really interesting so you know certainly this elephant was producing tears but they weren't emotional tears i think there was a little bit of you know not letting science get in the way of a good story
1: there i'm afraid victoria gill so maybe more a case of crocodile tears rather than elephant tears
0: we've heard from mark who sent us an email to chris at thenakedscientist.com referring to the banknote item we covered earlier and he says so if the banknotes have integrated idents on them that means if a batch was stolen then the authorities could deactivate them could this be done? Well yes potentially Mark because an app could be circulated whereby all the notes are logged in a central database and then if one were stolen it would flag up to a, an app that you are running on your phone this is a stolen note and you'd know not to trust the person who is trying to push it at you. Mark does conveniently and helpfully point out at the bottom of his email that he isn't planning a bank heist at this time. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and also with Kat Arnie. Now, on to our main topic for the week, and this week marks the 45th anniversary of the launch of Apollo 11, which was the mission that first set mankind on the moon.
6: 10, 9, ignition sequence starts. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Zero. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Thirty-two minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11.
3: Okay, Houston, Apollo 11 at that in gave us a magnificent ride. Uh, Roger, 11. We'll pass that on, and it looks like you're well on your way now. Tranquility base here. The Eagle has
2: landed.
3: Roger, Tranquility,
2: we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a
3: lot. Okay, Neil, we can see you coming down the ladder now. I'm gonna step off the limb now. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind.
1: Still spine-tingling. Since that first landing, a total of 12 people have now walked on the moon at six different landing sites. Together they've travelled nearly 100 kilometres across the lunar surface and deployed over two tonnes of scientific equipment. But one of the greatest legacies of these Apollo missions is the 383 kilos of moon rock that the astronauts lugged back to Earth with them. Britain's only moon rock is stored at London's Natural History Museum and Greer Jackson joined Professor Sarah Russell there to take a closer look.
8: When I was a child, I remember the Apollo mission. At the time, my friends got excited about almost everything, but this was the first time I'd seen my parents and other adults looking genuinely amazed and excited about what was happening, and that made me really think this is something so special. And in front
9: of us is one of those samples from one of those lunar missions. Can you tell me a bit about how this rock came to be here?
8: The president at the time, President Nixon, actually gave a small piece of moon rock to every country around the world. Just looking at it, it's about, what, thumbnail
9: size, would you say? And it's encased in a big glass marble. The rock itself is actually quite black, but I always thought the moon looked quite grey, so why is it so black?
8: Yes, if you look up to the moon in the sky, you can see most of it is a white colour, and it's white because it's made mostly of one mineral called anorthite. It's thought that when the moon first formed it was entirely molten and then as bits started to crystallize the lighter crystals floated to the top and they happened to be white but also if you look up at the moon you can see it's got big dark lotches on it and these we think formed by later volcanism so it could be that this rock is a piece of this later volcanic activity on the moon so what have the lunar samples told us The lunar samples have told us so much about the moon. Before the Apollo missions, we had no idea how the moon formed, so there were lots of different theories. One theory was that it could have co-accreted with the Earth, so they could be kind of twin planets, or it could have spun off the Earth if the Earth was spinning really fast, or it could be an asteroid that the Earth had captured. Really, there were loads of theories floating out there, and it was only after people had brought rocks back that a consensus emerged that actually the moon formed by a story that's even more amazing than any of those, which is that there was a giant impact of this Mars-sized body into the early Earth, then material splattered off, which then accreted to form the moon, which was very hot to start with and then cooled down slowly.
9: And I believe you've done some work yourself, specifically on some lunar samples as
8: well, and it's all to do with water actually in the early days when materials brought back from Apollo the scientists remarked on how dry it seemed but now 45 years on we've discovered that actually instead of being bone dry the moon actually did contain water and we can see evidence for that in little minerals called apatite and then at the Open University my student Jessica Barnes has looked at the isotopic composition of the water to try and determine exactly where it came from. If you look at the very primitive samples, actually the water looks very similar to the Earth. And we think the sources of water on the Moon and on the Earth are probably actually asteroids and also micrometeorites that are continuously bombarding the Earth and the Moon, especially in the early history of the solar system.
9: Does that mean there's no water there now, or could there
8: be some water locked away? Yes, well, as well as our work on the solid samples that we have here on Earth, people have been using spacecraft in orbit around the Moon to look at the presence of water, and there are places on the poles of the Moon that stay cold all the time, and we think now that these areas might actually have water ice, so it looks like actually the Moon might be a fairly good source of water, which could be exploited if, for example, there's ever a lunar base.
1: Planetary scientist Sarah Russell from the Natural History Museum.
0: The Apollo samples allowed scientists to understand just how rich and diverse the moon geology is. But these samples have literally just scratched the surface and now the race is on to get back to the moon. Unlike the so-called space race of the 1960s between Russia and America, today many more countries are competing, including China, Iran, Japan and India, as well as a host of private companies. But what are they all racing for? With us in the studio are Google's Lunar X Prize, Anita Hewitt, Birkbeck's Professor of Planetary Science, that's Ian Crawford, and also Professor David Rothery, who's a planetary geoscientist from the Open University. So first of all, hello to all of you. Hello.
2: hello. hello. hello.
0: First up, let's kick off with you, David. So we heard it sort of alluringly and tantalisingly mentioned there by Sarah Russell that the Moon was the product of a collision. But what actually do we understand about the Moon's origins?
10: Well, Sarah was talking about what we call the giant impact theory theory for the lunar origin. And that emerged in the first decade after Apollo, where if you look at the isotopic composition, the oxygen isotopes and so on of lunar and terrestrial material, it looks like they're formed from the same stuff. So this theory arose that there was a collision. A body like the Earth a body maybe Mars-sized. They were both differentiated and they had rocky cores, so iron-rich cores, and rocky outer layers. They are on the way to being planets, but they bumped into each other, and that's the last stage of planetary growth. And the core of the incoming body carried on and joined the Earth's core, but the rocky outer part of both, or parts of it, was fragmented and thrown into orbit around the Earth and re in this into this hot body, which was molten, as Sarah said, was a magma ocean, and the first forming crystals rose to the surface to give us these pale, anophyte-rich lunar highlands. And the moon almost lacks an iron core, because all the iron from the original body joined the Earth's core. So that's why the Earth and moon are different in composition, but isotopically they're so similar, it looks like they're formed from the same stuff. And the best idea is this giant impact, which is being challenged lately. It's not done and dusted. It might be wrong.
0: And when you say the isotopic composition, in other words, the flavours of chemicals we find here on Earth's surface are such an exquisitely close match for what's on the moon that it sort of hints at one coming from the other. They're both made
10: of the same there stuff. There are three different flavours of, of oxygen. They look so similar, but recently it's been pointed out actually they're not absolutely identical, so maybe this giant impact theory has some flaws in it.
0: But what do those lunar samples tell us the Moon is made of? What's up there that may be of use to us now or in the future?
10: Geologically, the Moon is nowhere near as diverse as the Earth. If you have a lot of water in the planet, you can have a lot of geology going on, melting to form granites and concentrate all minerals and so on. That hasn't happened on the Moon. Although there may be some traces of water, it's very small beer, really. So geologically, the Moon is perhaps less diverse you're not going to go to the moon and form a gold rush. But the one thing on the moon that you might want to bring back to the Earth is something called helium-3, which doesn't even belong to the moon. It's come from the solar wind. Helium nuclei streaming out from the sun that get splattered into the lunar soil and just held there. It doesn't make it to the Earth's surface because of our atmosphere and our magnetic field. Helium-3 you could use as a source of clean nuclear energy. You can fuse helium-free with heavy hydrogen and get cheap nuclear power. It's never yet been proved that it can be done economically, but if it can be, then fetching helium-free from the moon to the Earth would be a way to do it. But it costs money to get stuff from one planetary body to another. If you want to use the moon's resources, you're better off, I would say, using them to do things on the moon or in space it costs a lot to get up from the earth into orbit so get stuff from the moon to use in space
0: here on earth we're acquainted and familiar with the concept of mining we generally find areas which are enriched in certain minerals and we dig there to get them out would we see a similar sort of structure on the moon or is it distributed all over the moon and so it would be very difficult to have a mine for whether it's helium three or some other thing we wanted
10: Helium-free would be pretty uniformly distributed. Most mines on the Earth, we've had water circulating through the crust, concentrating stuff into places which makes it economical to dig up, tunnel to get to it. That's unlikely to happen on the Moon, with the one exception that's come to my attention is sites where a metal-rich asteroid might have formed a crater on the Moon. And these metal-rich asteroids carry platinum group elements, platinum, palladium, iridium and so on. And if you can find that asteroidal material in or around a crater, you might want to go mining for it. But mostly, I suspect, you're scavenging across the lunar surface.
0: So the bottom line is that whilst there may well be things up there, the cost of recovering it to Earth is likely to be pretty preclusive and therefore would it be better to say that it's more likely we would want to use it in situ, we'd want to establish some kind of operation on the Moon and use it there?
10: I think we are going to want operations on the Moon and it'll be very important for the economics of doing anything on the Moon that we can use as many of the local resources as possible because to lift stuff off the Earth to the Moon is very, very expensive. We need a cheap way of getting to the Moon and back. Do we know
0: where the resources are? Has anyone done a sort of mapping exercise of the Moon to spot which the juicy bits are to make a beeline for?
10: Well, everywhere on the Moon is regolith, powdered rock, which you can make habitats out of and shield yourself from radiation. There are craters near the poles which never receive sunlight, which do have water in them. It's not the same water that may have been with the Moon when it formed. It's water that's arrived with comets hitting the Moon... Most of the water when a comet hits is vaporised and the molecules will bounce around. If they hit a hot surface, they'll bounce again. If they go to a cold surface, like a shadow inside a crater where it's minus 150 centigrade, they will stick there. And if that crater is at the pole, so the sunlight never peers over the crater rim, the floor will be 150 degrees permanently and the water molecule will stick there. And there is 5% ice that's been proven now inside some polar craters. So if you want a lunar base and want to provide water for astronauts to drink or for use in industrial processing or to make into rocket fuel, you get it from inside these polar permanently shadowed craters. That's the one resource that's been located in concentration, water.
0: Well, that might come in very handy in the future to some of these missions that Google's Lunar X project are going to be exploring.
1: Yeah, so it's not just commercial missions that are considering a trip to the moon, and many scientific missions are being planned as well. Now, seven years ago, Google announced their Lunar X initiative. This was a $30 million prize fund to reward anyone who could send a robot to the moon, move it 500 metres across the surface, and beam back footage for us Earthlings to enjoy. There's now apparently 18 teams in the running, and with any luck, some of the May be blasting off moonwards within the next 18 months. So, to talk a bit more about this, we're joined by Google's Anita Heward. Hello. Hello. Tell me a little bit about this prize. Who's in it and what are they up to? First
11: of all, I just want to clarify that the prize money has been put up by Google, so they've put up this prize purse of $30 million, but the prize is actually operated by XPRIZE, which is a not-for-profit foundation, which puts up these prizes to encourage all kinds of technology breakthroughs for mankind.
1: So with, with these lunar robots, who's building them and what are they up to so far? Because 18 months doesn't seem a long time away to me. No, so they've had 2007, and obviously they've had
11: quite a challenge because with the financial crash, raising the money is one of their biggest hurdles, particularly raising the money for the launch vehicle. But as you say, we've got 18 teams in the running and they come from all over the world. We've got four based in the US, one in Canada, two in South America. We've got six in Europe. So actually, Europe's doing quite well with come this. <laughs> Sadly, not, not in the UK, no teams from the UK. And we have teams in Israel, India and Japan and Malaysia. So we've got a very global spread and they come from all kinds of different backgrounds. I I mean, it's very interesting for me, having come from sort of the scientific community, having a certain set of people. But I mean, the people that are involved in the XPRIZE come from all kinds of different backgrounds. We've got teams that are led by architects, people that come from software engineering backgrounds. So it's a very different perspective. And all of them have one thing in common, which is to set up some kind of business
1: which involves going to the moon. So people around the world are making these robots, they're presumably going to have to launch them in some kind of way. How do you go about getting a rocket? Onto the moon. Do some people have strong plans for this?
11: They do, and it's a big challenge. And within the 18 teams, we have quite a broad spectrum of ways of approaching that. We probably have about half a dozen that are actually aiming to do the whole mission. So they're securing their launch slot and getting into lunar orbit, and then landing on the moon themselves, and then deploying their robot. And their robot doesn't have to actually row 500 metres. It can take off and fly again, or it can it can roll, it can bounce around, it it can do all kinds of ways. But many of the teams are just focusing on that mobility vehicle that final stage on the moon and so they're actually buying a launch slot off one of the other teams and so what's quite exciting is we could end up with sort of like a race on the moon with five robots <laughs> or rovers deployed at the same time and We're then we have battling to battling it yeah, out up there.
1: absolutely. <laughs> this does sound absolutely brilliant. I mean it, it is a, an impressive challenge and one of the things in it is they have to be beaming back videos so in theory in 18 months we could have MoonTube coming to us. That's right. I mean the images
11: that we have Actually, from the surface of the moon, the Apollo images that are so familiar to us, they're sort of all a bit grainy and 1960s y. And what will be exciting about what we'll see back from the Google Lunar X Prize teams is that that will be, you know, real high definition imagery of the moon. They have to send back a panorama, they have to send back video of their journey traveling 500 meters and wherever they end up. And so you'll see an upstate view of the moon, which hopefully will kind of give you a, a better perspective
1: what it's actually like to be there. Uh, not, not a great party. There's not a lot of atmosphere, I've heard. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you could tell me about maybe one of the most exciting or the most intriguing things that you've heard one of the teams are up to. What's hot in this field? So the team's trying to do different
11: things. We have teams that their long term business goal is to set up infrastructure on the moon, so to set up networks of power and communications, so that then the opportunity for what you can actually do on the lunar surface then becomes much broader, much greater. So for mining, water, exploration, you can then deploy a whole load of little rovers that can go and explore. But we also have teams that are looking at going to Lacos Mortis, the Lake of Death, um, where we've discovered recently, the Japanese satellite Cayuga in 2009 discovered that there are these lava tubes underneath the surface of the moon and there are these caves that you can actually get down into them. And we have two teams that are looking to go to this area, where they will actually go and explore these caves and they're astrobotic and have. Akuto, our Japanese team. And the Japanese team's got this incredibly cool dual rover, which has a big rover called Moonraker, and a little rover called Tetris, which is going to actually abseil down into the cave on a tether, and then do some mapping underneath the lunar surface. So, I mean, that will be a whole new view of the moon. This is for serious science and exploration. It isn't just for laugh and YouTube videos, is it? No, absolutely. I mean, they are looking to do exploration that hasn't been done before. Another team, Moon Express, is looking to deliver a precursor optical telescope to the south pole of the moon i mean there is so much opportunity for the science community with this sort of new commercial access to the moon that rather than having to wait 10 years for a space agency to develop a mission and then have it cancelled at the last minute you can actually just go out and pay one of these teams to take your instrument there within a few months
1: looking forward to getting uh, the first moon tube that's anita hewitt from the lunar x prize
0: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and also with Kat Arney. And uh, if you would like to get in touch with us, with your thoughts on whether we should be heading back moonwards, you can tweet at Naked Scientists as James Strathdee did, and says humanity needs a stepping stone to help reduce the cost for travelling into the cosmos. A moon base would be helpful. And also Ben McGeorge, uh, he says a permanent moon base would be a pretty useful launch pad for trips to Mars, etc. Well we are celebrating this 45th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission which took humans to the moon for the first time And so far we've heard about grand plans to further explore the lunar surface and also to mine the moon But who, if anyone, has the right to do so? With us to tackle the thorny issue of who could actually own the moon is Professor Ian Crawford from Birkbeck College at the University of London Hi Ian Hi So does actually anyone own it? No. Nobody owns the Moon. The legal status of the Moon is
12: currently governed by the 1967 Outer Space Treaty and this treaty prohibits nation-states from appropriating the moon by planting flags on it or claiming sovereignty. So under current international law, nation-states are not permitted to own the moon. But there is an ambiguity, because when the 67 Treaty was formulated, no-one envisaged private access or tourism or the Google X Prize or anything like that. So it is true that these commercial endeavours are not really dealt with explicitly by the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, and therefore there is a case for clarifying the legal position before these commercial activities really get underway.
0: Of all countries in the world, signed up for the treaty or are some not in it?
12: No, effectively all relevant nations are parties to the Outer Space Treaty. The last time I checked it had 202 states parties signed up to the Outer Space Treaty and these include all spacefaring nations including China and India and Japan and, and it really, really any nation state that's in any way likely to be able to send anything to the moon is signed up to the Outer Space Treaty. So the Outer Space Treaty is secure. It is a secure foundation for international law for lunar exploration and exploitation but it doesn't quite go far enough because of when it was set up none of these commercial activities were envisaged.
0: So if a company were to go to the moon perhaps off the back of the Lunar X Prize if they were to get there and then begin exploitation of the moon would they be covered by legislation or would they be just capable of exploiting it to their own benefit and sell things off the back of that which they benefited from, the country they were from benefited from, but others wouldn't necessarily.
12: So this is where there is an ambiguity in the treaty that does need to be clarified. Currently the launching state is responsible for the activities of any commercial entity which goes to the moon or to anywhere in outer space. The nation state who launches this payload is responsible. So if any of these packages, like Google XPRIZE or whatnot, were launched from US territory, the United States of America, which is a signature of the treaty would be expected to enforce the terms of the Outer Space Treaty and similarly for any other launching state. Since nation-states are themselves not allowed to appropriate the moon, the sense is that this would prohibit the governments of nation-states that oversaw these launches. would have to ensure that they were not seen to be appropriating the moon and therefore probably would impose legal impediments to having private entities do so. So this would be a potential disincentive to the private exploration of the Moon. And I think I agree with Anita and others that we actually do need a commercial leverage here to help us explore the moon. So I think in order to facilitate this, a revisiting of the Outer Space Treaty would be desirable so that it made clear that although no one could appropriate the moon, at least private companies that went to the moon on their own initiative, if they were able to find anything worth selling, would benefit from their investment, because unless these private companies have that guarantee, they're unlikely to invest. And if they don't invest, we'll all be the poorer for it. So this is one of the reasons for wanting to clarify the international legal regime that currently covers the Moon.
0: All right. Well, you've just been writing a review on how the Moon might or might not be exploited or exploitable. What points were you making in that review, which admittedly hasn't been published yet?
12: Well, I agree with David Rothery, really, that the Moon has very little. It is so valuable that you would have to go to the Moon to get it and bring to the Earth to benefit the Earth's economy directly. Helium-3 is suggested, but as Dave correctly pointed out, helium-3 fusion hasn't yet been made to function on the Earth, so we don't even know there's a market for it. And even if there is, the helium-3 on the Moon is a finite resource. It's essentially a fossil fuel. You'd go to the moon and strip mine it and use it all up. So it's not a long-term solution to the Earth's energy needs. And the other possibility are that crashed metallic asteroids on the lunar surface might be mineable for platinum group elements, which conceivably could have a market on the Earth. But it's kind of pushing it. So I do think Dave was correct that really the economic value of the moon will be strongest in the context of development of lunar infrastructure itself to help explore the solar system, to take us to Mars, to permit scientific exploration. So lunar resources will be very important for that. And in developing an infrastructure, an economic infrastructure, in the inner solar system more generally. So in Earth's geostationary orbit, for example, if you wanted to build large spacecraft in low Earth orbit or geostationary orbit, the Moon will become an economically more attractive place to get the raw materials from, just because its gravity well is so much shallower than the Earth's. So I think that's the long-term context in which the economic value of the Moon should be seen.
0: Thank you very much, Ian. That's Ian Crawford from Birkbeck College.
1: Now, although unmanned trips to the Moon are currently being planned, and we've heard about some of those through the Lunar XPRIZE, no human has visited the lunar surface since December 1972, and some people might say that that's for a very good reason. Apart from being incredibly expensive, human spaceflight is also far more dangerous than the Apollo program's successes have really led us to believe. So, we're going to have a little discussion now with the wonderful guests that we have. Should people come back to the moon? I want to start with you, Anita. I mean, you're very involved in sending unmanned craft and robots up to the moon. Do you think that people will follow, and should they follow? I really hope so.
11: Apollo will happen before I was born, and so I've never experienced seeing somebody walk on the moon, and And one of our goals with the Google Lunar X Prize is to inspire the next generation of scientists and engineers. I think it's hugely exciting, as we've just talked a little bit about the commercialisation, the fact that it's not just nations, it's the fact that many different people and organisations of many different nationalities can now be involved in going and exploring the moon. And as Ian was saying, the opportunities with a moon base for exploration of the solar system become so much more, so much more attractive. And I, I think we really need that big vision for exploration that really has been missing for most of my lifetime. Ian,
1: where's your take on this? Do you think that it is worth sending humans back?
12: Oh yes, it's even, even just considering science, leaving aside the possible economic benefits, just scientifically, robots can achieve a certain amount, you know, they lead the way, they can provide the reconnaissance of planetary bodies, but when you want to really learn about things in depth, I think one of the legacies of Apollo was that having boots on the ground really makes those scientific expeditions so much more capable. So, I mean, no doubt that by sending people back to the Moon and establishing a lunar base, which you should envisage as something like an Antarctic research station, just as having bases in Antarctica has permitted a lot of science in Antarctica that otherwise wouldn't happen, having human bases on the Moon will permit a lot of science that otherwise we just won't do. So I think absolutely there's a very strong case for returning humans to the Moon.
1: Uh, although the costs are extremely high, and also the cost potentially... ...in terms of human life. Do you feel that that is a toss-up well, worth
12: counting? That, yes, I do think it's worth... It's obviously, it's a balance, <laughs> and all exploration is dangerous, right? If you look through Earth history, if you look at the exploration of Antarctica... ...a lot of people did lose their lives in Antarctica. But does that mean we shouldn't do it? It's through our work in Antarctica we've learned about the ozone hole... ...we've learned about global warming, we've learned about the history of the Earth's climate... ...from ice cores over hundreds of thousands of years. And none of that would have been possible... ...if we hadn't established scientific outposts in Antarctica... And I think if we establish similar scientific outposts on the Moon, we will learn a similarly large amount of information about our place in the universe. And we can't know what it is, because if we knew the answers, it wouldn't be exploration. It's just that by having a scientific infrastructure on the Moon, I think it's likely to lead us to learn much more about the solar system and our place within it than we will learn otherwise. And yes, I do think that's worth spending the money on, and I do think it's worth taking an informed risk to the risk of individuals who who would and such research stations.
1: So, David, what's your take on this? Would you imagine yourself being a moon pioneer? What do you think the next stages are to get men and all women back on the moon?
10: Well, I'm too old now. I do remember Apollo 11. I was 13 at the time. It was tremendously inspirational, and it will be again next time we get people there. But if I can put my gloomy geoscientist's hat on... We can't stay on this planet forever. We want our species to survive. We need humans living in space as well. Every 100,000 years we get a volcano which kills off the world's crops. We can't have all our eggs in one basket. We should be thinking ahead to the future. So scientific exploration on the moon science bases is, is a step towards sending people out to live on the moon and Mars and in space. Eventually we're going to want to do that, aren't we?
1: guess so, but uh, in what kind of time frame could you envisage a, a small lunar colony being
10: established? It depends, I think, on the commercial world these days. When Apollo landed, we said we'd have people there in 20 years' time, and it hasn't happened. It always seems to be 20 years into the future. But it could have a self-sustaining lunar colony there in 20 years if we put our minds to it. I'm not saying we can have mass emigration from the Earth to the Moon, but we could have people living there on a long-term basis, at least as long-term as people now live in Antarctica.
1: Let's hope so. Thank you very much.
0: And finally, closing our show for us this week, Greer Jackson has been bending space in search of the answer to this week's Question of the Week.
9: This week, we found ourselves watching old Star Trek episodes to answer Daniel Maguire's question.
2: Is warp travel a possibility? I've read on the internet that NASA is developing this. What do you guys think? Should we be getting excited about warp speed travel? And could you explain the process behind this theory?
9: So is it possible to travel faster than the speed of light? Or is it just the dream of sci-fi scriptwriters? And if it is feasible, how would it work? Over to Harold White, a physicist who heads the advanced propulsion team at NASA.
13: General relativity establishes a cosmic speed limit, an 11th commandment as it were, thou shalt not exceed the speed of light. This same theory also provides a couple of loopholes wormholes and space warps that could be used to allow someone to make a stellar journey to say another star system in a time measured in months or weeks all the while never locally exceeding the speed of light and of course maintaining sync with clocks on board the ship and clocks here in mission control in Houston. Now the idea of a space warp comes from the fact that in general relativity space can expand and contract at any speed. It, It has no speed limit.
9: So there's a loophole in the theory of general relativity that would allow for massive distances to be travelled very quickly. What happens is space compresses and expands around the object in warp, resulting in space-time shifting around the ship. This repositions the ship without ever actually moving it, just like if Earth moved under your feet so you could get to work without ever having walked there. This all sounds very exciting, but could warp travel ever become a reality?
13: This is actually a pretty tough question. Uh, And based on some recent work performed by my colleagues and I uh, here at NASA and some of the folks at Icarus Interstellar XP4, the concept has been moved from the category of impossible to uh, at least plausible. Now, this doesn't mean that the concept is feasible, and this is actually a matter of forward work. There's actually quite a bit of work to do, so please help us out by pursuing a path in science, technology, engineering, or mathematics, and join us in this endeavour.
9: So it looks like the notion of warp speed might just travel out of sci-fi and into the real world, with your help, of course. Thank you, Harold White. Next, we'll be searching for the answer to this question, sent in by Peace Peter.
0: How much of my body could I live without? People donate a pint or so of blood... A kidney, maybe, and can live without limbs. But what's the limit? How much of our body do we really need?
9: So, people donate organs, bone marrow, and even give blood. But what parts of our body are essential for survival? What couldn't we live without? What do you think?
0: Definitely couldn't live without my wallet. Thank you very much to Greg Jackson for this week's question. If you have an answer for us, chris at thenakedscientist.com. If you have a question for us then it's the same email address. That's it for this week. Thank you very much to our contributors, Sarah Russell, David Rothery, Anita Hewitt, and also Ian Crawford. Thank you to Greg Jackson for production. Do join us next week when we'll be seeing if it's possible to bring extinct species back from the dead. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, and the SDFC. I'm Chris Smith, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.